Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabong, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, How Technology, Consumerism, and Pandemic Are Accelerating the Future, in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. Hello again, this is your host, Patty Padmanabhan. I'm going to be speaking today with the founder of an AI-enabled technology startup that's taking an interesting approach to helping consumers manage their health. Before we get started, I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge our partner and sponsor, BeWell, for their generous support. Hello again. I'm here with Andrew Lee, co-founder and CEO of Bowie Health. Andrew, thank you so much for setting aside the time and welcome to the show. Thanks, Patty. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came about starting Bowie Health. Sure. I am a, a doctor by training. I actually started Bowie back when I was in medical school. So I was at Harvard. I was going to go be a neurosurgeon. That was my life stream. And then my last rotation was in the emergency room uh, at MGH in Boston. And I just kept seeing all these patients who were Googling their symptoms, reading something online, and then just making a bad guess as to what kind of care they should be seeking. And that leading to a lot of bad outcomes. So real story, I saw a woman with a jammed finger followed by a man who had an ulcer on his foot from a history of poorly controlled diabetes. The ulcer had become infected. And we had to amputate his leg that night. Still remember saying to the first person, like, hey, you're fine, you can go home. And she pulls out these pronouns from you know, the internet telling me why she thought her finger was broken and why she was waiting in, in the ER for six hours. And then the very next person, when I was like, you know, sir, I'm so sorry. Had you waited a couple of hours, had you come in a couple of days earlier, we could have saved your leg. You know, he pulls out pronouns from WebMD telling me why he had waited and why you know, he didn't think we should amputate. And unfortunately, my dad got really sick. He had a mini stroke, didn't go to the doctor. I had two younger sisters who were both docs. And so I was like, dad, you know, why didn't you call one of us for help? You have like unlimited free telemedicine, you know? Uh, I mean, he paid for it, but in a different way. And uh, he was like, you know, you guys are working. I was like, okay, you know, why didn't you Google it? He was like, you know, I don't trust what I find on Google. So for me, that was kind of this emotional tipping point. Three months for graduating, I took a sabbatical from school and started Bowie. And just became obsessed with this idea that consumer-driven healthcare, you know, shopping in healthcare, all wasn't real. It wasn't possible because it was predicated on this idea that a consumer or a patient or a person, a member, whatever you want to, however you want to call them, when they're sick, like they had to be clinically trained to figure out like what it is, what treatment they should pick, right? Like what doctor they should see in order to get the treatment in order to get the outcome that they're looking for. And that's just not part of our educational system. So we set out to build a product that could solve that knowledge gap, help people figure out what's going on with their bodies, help them figure out what treatment will lead to the right outcome for them. Yeah. And that's the journey we've been on. And so you're known as a company that is in the AI-enabled digital health, healthcare space. And AI is a very broad term today. 
at a very broad level, it refers to taking large amounts of data, making sense of it, and providing clinical decision support. But then AI is used in other contexts and other functions as well. I'd be, you know, I'd love to hear your definition of what AI is and how you apply that, how you applied that to starting your business and running your business. Sure. I mean, I think AI in the most basic sense in, in my mind is, you know, the ability for a non-human entity, in this case, obviously a computer, to deduce something as if they were a sentient, intelligent being. So all of the definitions, Patty, that you threw out there, that falls under that very broad umbrella. I think it's a too often used buzzword today for statistics and data science and the ability to turn data into insights. I, yeah. I think that's as simple as, as that. And I think, you know, it's a overhyped, overused kind of term. Specific to our application of AI, it's as simple as, you know, imagine if you could communicate with a computer program that communicated back to you in a way that a clinician would. And the net result, that communication back and forth, you know, it feels like you're texting with someone is that, you know, Bowie actually tells you what's most likely going on. And then, as I mentioned before, what the best possible treatment is for what's going on and to help you make a really educated self-diagnosis, self-triage, self-navigation into the right care at the right time. So you use it uh, primarily for triaging uh, based on inputs uh, that patients or consumers may put into the tool, and uh, you match it up with data at the back end that throws up a set of potential recommendations or likely diagnosis or whatever the case may be. As used by a physician, I, I imagine it's not used directly by a consumer, or am I wrong? Yeah, no, it's used by the consumer. So I, okay. I very purposely did not say that we diagnose. We don't, we're not you know, trying to replace a doctor. We're really replacing what today is a very rudimentary system for narrowing down what's going on with you, which is a search engine that narrows things down for a whole host of different things. So in this situation, yeah, you're talking to a computer program. It's asking you questions. You're answering them in real time. Thousands of possible questions are getting re-ranked. At the end of the interview, which takes about two, two to four minutes, we show people three possible matches. They get to see reasons for and against each match, which then helps them understand, okay, yeah, you know, I, I do have pretty moderate you know, knee pain, not uh, minor knee pain. It helps them then decide, okay, yeah, actually this seems like the most logical match for me. And then based on that, based on their clinical situation, based on their benefit design, based on their insurance information, if we're working with that their particular employer or their particular payer, we can then show them, okay, here are the services that are in-network for you or subsidized by your payer or your employer and to then get them into that right care at the right time. So that, that brings us to the, the fundamentals of the, the economic model of the business, right? There's a user, which in this case is directly the consumer. There's someone who's paying for it. From what I understand, the payer could be either the employer, the payer could be a commercial or a Blue Cross kind of a payer, or it could be the consumer. So I, as a consumer, could potentially go download the app and use it and pay for it as well. All of these are the, the sources of revenue for the company? The main source of revenue from the company is actually from the self-insured employer and the payer. We don't charge consumers for accessing Bowie. 
you can go on buoy.com right now and it's totally free for you to use. If you get it through your employer or through your payer, also free for you to use. The employer, the payer are, is paying us to essentially configure Buoy to their particular network design, their particular set of point solutions, their particular services that are in network for them to then drive them into that right care at the right time. So that clarifies, that's really helpful. I noticed that you didn't mention providers. So you're going to employers and the payers. Any particular reason why providers are not a target market for you? It's a really good question because it kind of gets at, you know, where we're headed next. From an original kind of company perspective, you know, we started out working with some health systems. And when we started looking at data coming from our deployments, you know, the use case was let's help a consumer navigate a complex health system, right? What we found was that when we'd ask people up front what kind of care they're looking for, and then we would see where they ended up going, we were de-escalating like 50% of ER visits, 48% of people who originally were going to the urgent care, 42% of primary care. And it was pretty astounding how if you remove like uncertainty and fear from the equation, how often that was de-escalating people's care. And you know, health systems in no fault of their own are in a their transition right now from fee-for-service to value-based care. They're somewhere along that spectrum. Let's call it 80-20. When you show someone that data that, hey, we're actually potentially reducing the number of people that come in, that 80-20 math starts to play out, yeah. right? And so it, it doesn't, it's not a great fit for that use case. Uh, this is the classic conundrum, right? For... <laughs> digital health solutions. And I was just curious, I couldn't stop myself. I had to ask you, how long did it take you to figure out that providers are not going to be thrilled about this? That's a good question. I, I would say about a quarter. I think we had the benefit of having some investors on the payer side who helped us know that that would be the eventual landing spot of where we would be very valuable if we were able to change behavior and move people into the right care. And so it was one of those things where like, oh, look, we're actually de-escalating care. You hear from a couple of potential prospects that, oh, I don't know, that's not that interesting. It was immediate, like, okay, we should be moving to self-insured employers and payers like right now. <laughs> and so that was that was the shift. But I will say that uh, going into this year, you know, where we're headed as a business is that we have 30 million consumers that come onto Buoy every single year directly onto Buoy.com. You know, we work with three of the largest payers and hundreds of self-insured employers. And so the next opportunity for us is to say, well, if we can drive consumer-driven healthcare, if we can make healthcare shoppable with our technology that kind of takes the shopping decision out of the hands uh, or out of the domain of, you know, a doctor who shops on your behalf or a doctor who guides your shopping decision is now the opportunity for us to actually bring services directly onto the week providers directly onto Buoy to enable this three-sided marketplace where what the marketplace's core function is, is to do a really complex match between that consumer and exactly what service they should be going to. Yeah. Focusing less on health systems, more on digital health solutions. Patty, you probably had podcast folks, or you've had guests on here, many of the companies that we're talking to and partnering with, but there have been 1,900 digital health companies founded in the last two years. So bringing them on to Buoy and helping them find the right patient for them 
is kind of the next stage of the business. Interesting. That's an interesting model. So you really your your compadres in the digital health world are potentially your customers as well. But I want to go back to you know just to round out that that thread. Sure. Even though you said that you decided to move on from providers, you did say that it was an 80-20, and we know that only 20% of healthcare is on some kind of a value-based capitated kind of a model, but that percentage is expected to grow. So do you think that at some point in future the ratio will change enough for you to get, to go back and be interested in talking to health systems again? And if so, are we a, a year away, a quarter away? Definitely not a quarter, but are we a year away or are we five years away? What's your read? It's such a good question. I think that with the success of digital health on the value-based side over the last couple of years, it's a forcing function for the rest of healthcare to move in that direction. So I don't think that we are a decade away, but I will caveat and say we're not a year away. Healthcare moves at the pace that it moves. COVID was a massive accelerant for the digital version of that. I think there's going to be continued momentum moving in the direction of value-based care. But, you know, legacy ways of making money, let's call it, are hard to unwind. Let's take a quick break. And I'd like to acknowledge our partners and sponsors, Be Well. And if you like this podcast, rate us on whatever favorite podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're interested in listening to the archives, visit us at thebigunlock.com. With that, back to the conversation. Well, that's a great segue to the next theme I was going to explore with you. You talked about forcing functions. Two years ago, we had this forcing function, which was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now we are in another forcing function, arguably, which is there's acute shortage of labor everywhere in the economy and in healthcare in particular. I read an estimate. In fact, I read a report by, I think, the American College of Healthcare Executives that came out this month, which said the number one priority challenge for healthcare CEOs today, shortage of labor. You know, I was going to talk actually today where I it was hosted by an automation company. One of the big drivers for their growth is really eliminating or backfilling human labor with automation technologies. Is that the next forcing function? Do you see that as a forcing function for your kind of a business? When I say that, I mean any AI-enabled business that reduces the workload on caregivers, clinicians, and quite frankly, consumers in getting to the right decisions quickly and getting to the right treatments quickly. Absolutely. I think that it's been a, an underlying, in some ways, unstated problem for many years, but you're right that it is acutely a problem now where for an average person, access to care is really hard. You know, the, Patty, you were telling me about you have a, a family member living in Boston. You know, the average wait time in Boston where we're headquartered is 49 days to see your primary care doctor. And this is like five years ago. I don't even know what the, I don't want to look up what the number is today. <laughs> and so access has always been a problem and access is now an even bigger problem as we're seeing kind of this massive burnout of healthcare workers across the entire spectrum of different types of clinicians and workers. I happen, as I mentioned, to have some siblings, you know, in the healthcare field and many friends and former, you know, classmates of mine in the healthcare profession. And 
they feel a massive amount of strain. And I, it's very hard to, it's very easy to see why there is that shortage. And so when I think about the future of our company, the future of digital health, I think the thing we really have to focus on is for the labor that exists out there today and in the future, how do we make sure that they're doing, I know the the catchy phrase is like practicing at the top of their license, but the way I think about it is like, you know, clinicians and humans specifically are really good at healing. The pat on the back, the treatment rendered in a kind, compassionate way, that is a job that's extremely difficult to replace by anything automated. And I think that everything else besides the act of healing should be automated away. And so when we think about that, I think of like the fact that, well, when you go to the doctor, the doctor is not just the healer. They're also your shopper. You know, they're, they're the ones that are like, Hey, here are your options. You can do a B or C. What do you want to do? I feel like if you could automate that part away, and again, you allow the clinician to be the healer to do what they do best the moment they actually need it. The amount of work that could take out of the clinician's day in the room, but also more importantly, from a documentation perspective and thus like a billing perspective and thus like a post-care rundown and find what is left to be paid by the patient problem. Like there's so many issues there that that could just get rid of. And so I think there is uh, just a, treasure trove of today human or manually done parts of healthcare that should be automated by technology. There is a considerable increase in interest in automation technologies. Uh, RPA has made a lot of inroads in the administrative functions space, and we are seeing increasing use of voice recognition technology, for instance, and uh, all indications are there's going to increase even further, even though they are at fairly low-level applications today relative to what they could possibly do going forward, which is really enabling data-enabled approaches to care that, you know, that climb up the value chain and, and are providing intelligent clinical decision support. Which brings me to the next question, you know, in a data-enabled technology business, what are the biggest challenges that you have encountered as an entrepreneur in building this business from a data aggregation, uh, data management, data quality, data analysis standpoint? I would say the biggest problem is the, this is going to, I don't think my insight here is going to be unique or interesting whatsoever, Patty, but I would say that the silos of healthcare data are very real. Everyone sees data that is really owned by the patient to be theirs and theirs alone. (laughs) And to not want to share that in, in any form or fashion in the guise of like HIPAA and patient privacy, I think is like a real challenge. Like I said, I, patient privacy and data ownership, all of that from a compliance perspective makes a ton of sense. And that is correct. But if a patient, again, who owns their own data consents to having their data move from one place to another for the betterment of their care and for the betterment of their experience in healthcare, that should be made really easy. Today, you know, that's just not the case. Obviously, a ton of that digital health investment has gone into businesses to make healthcare more interoperable, to liberate that data, to clean it, make it more actionable, drive more insights. And so I'm hopeful over the next few years that it gets easier and easier for a consumer to tangibly hold their data in a meaningful way. 
Well, let's talk about the flip side of that too, right? Uh, consumers definitely must have access to their own data, and I completely agree with that. Now, the flip side to the story is that if the data falls into the wrong hands, there can be all kinds of unintended consequences. Consumers may not know what they're sharing with others, why they're sharing it, what the secondary and tertiary uses of the data are. And I just read uh, uh, recently this, it's like a wild west out there. There are application developers and companies that have access to the data and they're selling it or passing it on. And in many cases, that is the essential business model for a lot of the companies that are aggregating this data. Again, not pointing any fingers at anybody here, but I'm pointing to that as potentially a flip side. And the unintended consequences can be a mile too severe. And, you know, there are many, many examples of some of those unintended consequences. Now, with the caveat that I am an optimist and I truly believe in the, in the power of data and AI and advanced analytics to really make a big difference in care. How do you as a company, as a founder who is really in the AI, the data aggregation and analysis business at the end of the day, how do you address it at your company level? And what are your your views on this? I mean, our view, and I'd love to come back to Patty, your point, because I think it's a really interesting counter to what I said. Our view is that at the end of the day, trust with the patient is if we're a company that's trying to drive better decision-making at the consumer level to empower people to get the right care at the right time so that we make healthcare more efficient. If the consumer doesn't trust us with that, their decision, then it's like, why, why do we exist whatsoever? So when it comes to how we treat their data, how we protect their data, who gets access to their data, any action, whether real intended or not, that eats at that trust is kind of a non-starter for us. When it comes to, I I think that is a nice kind of, I guess, segue into kind of your earlier point, which probably you're saying like, okay, well, what about the secondary consequences of, or, you know, what if the consumer doesn't know like how their data is being used or what if it's being done in a nefarious way? I, and this is controversial what I'm going to say, I think that that has definitely proven out to be true in almost in many other kind of tech industry, like parts of tech, where the products themselves are addictive and are really kind of a means of like gathering data and then monetizing that data in a in a way that may not be best for that person. I think healthcare is different. You know, people don't come and use healthcare for purposes of you know, Selling vanity. Yeah. Like there's the, the intent of someone going into healthcare is to be able to go back to their baseline is to get healthy again. And so if it turns out that this company is doing something bad with their data and it comes out in my mind, there's no way that that company will be able to exist for very much longer because there's going to be a, a flight to quality, you know, cause like Again, people aren't on the website to look at their friends' stuff. It's healthcare. They just want to get better. If I go to that site and that site is selling my data, probably not going to go on that site anymore. So I have a bit more trust in the consumer to not let that happen because the intent when in the healthcare context is just different than in other contexts where, unfortunately, we have seen that misuse of like consumer data. 
Yeah. That's my uh, optimistic hope, though. No, I think that's well said. It's a very, very balanced view, and I'm glad uh, you know that you kind of present on both sides of the, of the coin. And I think you do make a valuable and important uh, comment, which is healthcare data is a little bit different. The bar is a little bit higher uh, when it yes. comes to, and so there are some very serious consequences for misuse of the data, and there's, there's very serious consequences for breach of trust. And so, I wish we could go on much longer. I'd love to dig into it, maybe on another conversation. Fortunately, we are coming up to time here. I do want to take the last couple of minutes that we have to ask you to share a couple of learnings from your entrepreneurial journey for uh, all your friends and colleagues in the digital health world, in the startup world. You know, 30 billion or more in VC money went into startups last year. Chances are it's going to be much higher this year. And what have you learned in the last couple of years that you would like to share with uh, your colleagues, especially those that are looking to start a company now? I think. There's so much to learn in starting a company that can be applied from other industries that work in healthcare. I think the piece of advice I give most often to people going into healthcare, into digital healthcare specifically, is the part that's different about healthcare, which is that outside of direct-to-consumer services where someone is paying, the sales cycles in healthcare are so long regardless of whether you're selling to pharma, employers, payers, health systems, what have you, the cycles are so long that your learning is slow because by the time you get someone to say no, which in and of itself is a learning, yeah. you know, it'll take you 12 to 18 months. And so when you are raising capital and trying to prove something out, it's crazy how much you have to guess correctly in order to make it to the next stage and I think that is a reality that you, as an entrepreneur, have to embrace. In other words, if it is slow, how can I either speed up my learning in some innovative way, or do I have to raise enough money to last through two, three sales cycles? It's just a stark reality that I think is not talked about when, again, kind of trying to apply the tech scene and how tech works and how to start a tech company relative to healthcare and digital health. Well, I hope that doesn't discourage anyone from getting into healthcare because I think we do need the innovators. I think we need the people who can come and dig in for the long haul. And I do think we need the investors who are going to have faith that eventually it's all going to work out. Andrew, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I wish we could go on much longer, but maybe back again on another call. Once again, all the very best uh, to you and to Bui Health. And uh, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks, Patty. It was so good to talk, talk to you. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank our partners, BeWell, for their sponsorship and their support. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at with your feedback and questions. 